Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation, where today there is a lot of gratitude in the air for all of you listeners for making our fundraising marathon a big success. We just finished last night with the Hoof and Mouth Symphonia as the finale to the two-week fundraising marathon. Thanks to all of you listeners who pledged, pitched in, chipped in, helped, volunteered, cooked food, cleaned up. Everybody pitched in to make the fundraising marathon 2022 a big success. And it remains a, a unique honor and privilege for me to be a part of this community. I just, I love what we're doing here. And for everyone who pitched in, I appreciate it. I also appreciate everyone who said such nice things in the comments that you left uh, for the the DJ and MC during the two weeks. Um, I have read through all of those and I, I just, I really appreciate everyone showing their gratitude for Tectonic. You know, I, I put a lot of uh, heart and soul into this show and it is just gratifying to hear from you that it means something to to you as well and i can't wait to see the (laughs) t-shirt i haven't seen it yet in person but we have a new t-shirt designed by greg harrison that uh if you chose it and your dj premium you'll get it too and i'm 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 excited to see it when it when it comes out so uh so thanks thanks uh to all of you and um and it's, it's great to be here. And it's great to be back on the first Tectonic after the fundraising marathon. This is a great show. And I, I, I'm really excited to share this with you, this interview with Damon Krakowski talking about the purchase of Bandcamp. Because what happened was, I think it was on March 2nd, so early in this month, uh, Bandcamp, the beloved website and platform for downloading music from uh, independent artists uh, purchasing music and and, and, the, and the platform that has this great program called Bandcamp Fridays where one Friday a month they devote all of their revenue for that day to the artists, 100% cut, which is a little bit more than what Google YouTube gives to artists. What is it? 0.00000000001 penny per stream or something. <laughs> and I think Spotify is right down there uh, as well. I'm exaggerating, but just a bit. Uh, Bandcamp has been long, uh, as I say, beloved and, and respected and admired for actually treating independent artists well and and treating the, the music listeners well as well, giving them a way to get to this great music. Well, as I say, on March 2nd, I think it was, they announced that they were purchased by Epic Games. Now, if you don't know Epic Games, if you're not a video game player, you may not have heard of Epic Games. It's a company based in Cary, North Carolina, which is unusual for a, a major tech company to be outside of California or Washington State. But it, but there it is, Cary, Cary, North Carolina, and it's best known for a breakout smartphone um, game called Fortnite, which a couple of years ago was just a huge deal. 
uh, among teenagers and preteens as well. Uh, just f- they would they would go on to their smartphones, and it was um it's a it's a game where you and and they still Epic still runs this game, I believe. Um, you run around and shoot the other players. It's a first person shooter, but it's kind of cartoony, and it has some social media aspects to it as well. So it was a good fit for that audience that Epic was going after. But as Damon's going to point out in in our interview, there was nothing particularly musical about Epic Games. Uh, And there's more to say about the ownership structure of Epic Games, which if I have time after the interview, I'll I'll get into that. But I just want to establish that Bandcamp has been bought by a, a major video game company. And I... I have to admit, I don't feel optimistic for the prospects for Bandcamp. They, they, of course, of course, like these, these acquisitions always go. They have a corporate happy talk on the day of the acquisition from both sides, both the purchasing organization and the and the company that's been bought. Both of them have uh, representatives saying, "Oh, we're so happy. This is going to be great." Uh, everything is is going to stay the same and or get better. You you, you can't imagine how great it's going to be. Whereas if you've been in the tech industry as long as I have, you look at that and you go, <laughs> oh no, how long until this reverts to the mean of of corporate acquisitions in the tech industry? How long before this um, really changes Bandcamp for the worse? So around that time, Damon Krakowski has been writing on this blog. Uh, his thoughts about Bandcamp and other topics, which we're going to get into, Spotify included. And I thought he he both had some, he, he's a great writer. Um, he was on the show, you'll hear, he was on the show about three years ago talking about his book and podcast, Ways of Hearing. And on this uh, Dada Drummer Almanac blog, he has been writing about the Bandcamp purchase. And I thought, Better for me to spotlight Damon than for me to hold forth for an hour on Bandcamp <laughs> because Damon's, Damon is actually an expert in this area because he is a musician. Uh, in the 80s, he was part of Galaxy 500. And uh, more recently, he is a, a part of Damon and Naomi, who've been on WFMU a number of times and well known to WFMU listeners. So I thought, let's hear from Damon Krakowski what he thinks about the Bandcamp acquisition. And, uh, and then we, we had to get through this fundraising marathon, which I was very excited about. And so this is my first opportunity, really, to uh, dive into this with Damon. So we're going to hear my interview now with Damon Krakowski. Uh, I put a bunch of links to Damon and Damon's uh, blog posts, which we reference in the interview. They're all on the playlist at WFMU.org. Just click playlists and comments, and you can see those links down the left side of the page, and you can join in the live listener chat down the right side of the page. And uh, let's go ahead and hear this interview with Damon Krakowski here on Tectonic on WFMU. Damon Krakowski, welcome back to Tectonic. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to return, although this time it's virtual. <laughs> That's right. And it's great to have you back on the show. The first time you were on was in June of 2019 when we spoke about your book, Ways of Hearing, and your podcast, also called Ways of Hearing, both of which I still recommend to all listeners. 
they can go to the archives of Tectonic, find that show, and click through to listen to you and uh, take a look at the book and listen to the podcast as well. But the reason I wanted you to come back is because you have been writing some amazing posts on your Substack, which is called Dada Drummer Almanac. And while I'm not a huge fan of Substack, I am a fan of you, Damon, and I'm a fan of your writing. And what you are writing about is insightful and it's timely, and I thought it'd be important to share with the Tectonic listeners. You're writing about Bandcamp, among other things. Um, Bandcamp was recently acquired by the gaming company Epic Games, and you come at the Bandcamp acquisition from an unusual angle, and this is where I want to start. You wrote a piece called Scaling Up on March 8 that starts with a kind of a walking tour through your hometown of Cambridge, Massachusetts. You start scaling up this way. I took a walk through Harvard Square and tried to remember the locations of all the bookstores there I used to visit. Why did you say bookstores you used to visit? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't you go to bookstores anymore? (laughs) Exactly. So much less because there's so fewer here left to to visit. But first of all, thank you so much, Mark, for for inviting me back and for noticing the Substack, which is um, a relatively new venture for me, but I'm having fun with it. It was suggested to me by some other writers and editors as, you know, kind of like get with it, old guy, you know, print publications aren't necessarily going to be the place to run all your work. And um, it might be time to launch this kind of thing. So, you know, I went into it kind of skeptically, just as I hear probably you would have too. But it turns out it's really, it's nice to be your own editor for a number of reasons. One is the speed that I can respond to things that are going on. So it's actually turned out to be more topical than I expected it to be, um, which gets to something like this Bandcamp uh, sale, which I, I sort of could write about right away. I didn't have to like pitch it and, uh, you know, go through that process and then have it vetted. I could kind of, it's more off the cuff for better and worse, obviously. That's what happens when you don't have editors. So yeah, so that that piece was inspired by the sale of Bandcamp, which, you know, nothing terrible has happened yet to Bandcamp. <laughs> like it's all the same. So for those of you out there who enjoy downloading records from Bandcamp, and I really recommend it because it's a it's just been a great platform for, for musicians and indie artists and labels, uh, kind of a godsend in the digital musical landscape, uh, especially during COVID when they started waiving their reasonably small share of income uh, the first Friday of every month, which has been a huge boon, a huge boon. That's what they called Bandcamp Fridays. Yeah, it's been absolutely great. Anyway, alas, like so many independent businesses that I have seen come and go in my career, they have been sold to a much, much bigger company. And here's the distressing thing to me. It's not a company that's based on music. So it, so now we've got another music platform that we end up depending on that is actually now owned by non-music people, in this case, gaming, you know, uh, just like Apple Music is not owned and iTunes was never owned by music people. It's owned by, obviously, Apple Computer and you can go down the whole list. YouTube is owned by Google Alphabet and Spotify is ostensibly a music platform, but they're owned by um, tech capital speculators. Very much their focus is on other things, as we've seen recently in, in controversies about their interest in podcasting, especially um, controversial podcasts like Joe Rogan. 
So, you know, what, once again, it's sort of like, uh oh, here we go again. You know, our little music world is being raided by larger capital. And who knows what they're going to do with Bandcamp. So anyway, it just got me thinking about, you know, all the changes I've, I've lived through watching smaller scale businesses disappear because they end up being placed in competition with much more deeply capitalized corporations. So to translate that from the online world to the offline, I took a walk to my neighborhood, which is Harvard Square, Cambridge. When I moved to Harvard Square to go to school in the 80s, uh, there were so many bookstores and record stores. Uh, it was just, you 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 couldn't count them, literally. I mean, I, I, I so I just went through this exercise. It was like, can I count them? Can I remember how many there were? So I, I started with bookstores and I went, just walked through the square and took a photo on my iPhone, invented by Apple Computer. <laughs> Such a useful tool. Um, and photographed where I remembered all the stores that I used to spend time browsing in. And I counted 16. I then Googled it, and there were actually 27 when I moved here. There were 27 bookstores in the Harvard Square neighborhood at that time. Yeah, and now for those who've never visited Harvard Square, it is very, very small. To translate it to New York terms, uh, I mean, we're not talking Greenwich Village, right, even. We're talking about a crossroads, really, a few commercial streets. It's a 17th century street plan. And uh, like a lot, like all the town centers in Boston, it's just sort of a few around Boston. It's just sort of a few commercial streets that cross, and that's where all the businesses are clustered. So we're we're just talking a few square blocks, and yeah, it had twenty seven. I remembered sixteen. Photographed them. What are they now? Banks, cell phone stores, um, a couple of clothing boutiques, a lingerie shop. You know, I mean, it's just like, sort of like anything except books or records. Uh, there also is a lot of vacancies because there's a huge amount of real estate development going on here and um, buildings are being renovated and they just sit there vacant until they can find some other new giant chain store to come into town and operate some branch, probably at a loss, um, as a sort of commercial for their brand. Right. Because uh, Harvard Square, by the way, has become very, very expensive real estate, commercial real estate. So, you know, it was a a sad exercise, but it was also, it felt very familiar to what we're facing as independent small business people in the arts and in commercial art all the time. Uh, So that's where that started. We should say that you, in that post, went on to do the same thing for record stores. Right. Record stores, I think I counted 14 that I could remember and photographed them too. And similarly, they're all banks or you know, whatever, uh, a bunch of restaurants. None of them are businesses dealing in media. I mean, that's the big divide. But then most of them are not businesses dealing in the kind of scale of exchange that books and records represent. I mean, books and records are a small business, you know? Right. Uh, Even Tower Records and HMV, which had branches here, which were the biggest record stores you could get, we're nothing compared to what's in those spaces now. Uh, Tower Records is now Verizon and HMV is a bank. Those deal in a scale of, of capital that has nothing to do even with, with the big chain stores, much less the tiny little shops that we had so many of. They're gone. The texture of the neighborhood uh, really changed as a result because you know what came in 
was just a one chain store after the other. And now it's just so grotesque because it's literally just banks and real estate offices. Oh, I forgot to mention that. Both of the books and record store list, there were lots of real estate offices. And it's kind of like, what, what's the pleasure, even if you can afford to live here, to like walk into the town center and visit a real estate office in a bank? I mean, it's right. just like count, counting your money and evaluating your property. Is that like an evening, an evening's worth of entertainment, I guess? You know, it's just so, it's so sad. And it, it just doesn't, it doesn't contribute to the life of the neighborhood or the health of the neighborhood. That's right. What you're describing in that change that you've seen over the years in Boston, as you know, matches quite closely what we've seen here in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Also, I think in 2019, I had Jeremiah Moss on the show. Oh, yes, I know Jeremiah, yes. Talking about his book, Vanishing New York, which is just, I think, essential reading for New Yorkers. But it's also very, very sad because it tells a similar story of economic policies being set in place by multiple administrations in New York City, mm-hmm. leading to the over-financialization of all of our great neighborhoods. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really incredible. But it's sort of like a physical reflection. I mean, I think this is where this exercise can leave just nostalgia. That's right. And to be clear, I did not ask you on so that you and I could record a... <laughs> Nostalgic gripe fest. Good old days. Yes. I'm happy to do that with with you off the air. (laughs) But the reason why I think this conversation is so important for Tectonic Mm. is I think exactly where you're going. What you wrote in Scaling Up, this post on your Dada Drummer Almanac blog, Mm -hmm. talks about how that walk through Harvard Square and seeing the transformation of the neighborhood to the sterile, boring culture-free environment Mm -hmm. matches what we're seeing online and specifically to your expertise to music online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, yeah, that is where it leaves just nostalgia. And I, I really meant it more as a physical illustration for what we sometimes kind of can't see because online life can be kind of immaterial. And also it's this transformation that happens sort of step by step by step where you kind of don't realize how far you've traveled because it seems inevitable, but it's not inevitable. And that, that's what I also really wanted to kind of get to. What feels inevitable right now is that every, everything has to scale up. And just think about the language. That's the language that the internet uses constantly. I mean, that's the, that's the, the language of internet businesses, of, of raising money from venture capitalists. Does it scale? Does it scale? Yeah. Does it scale? I have an idea. Does it scale? And what I really wanted to get at is like, it shouldn't have to. You know, it's like, because some things are not meant to scale up. And once you do scale them up, actually, you're going to kill them. But the only things that can survive in our online economy are the things that can scale to a ridiculous extent. I mean, where, you know, so to to take another uh, realm of local life, grocery shopping, when I moved to Cambridge, we had a local health food store, you know, back in the day, that's what we called them. And uh, it was called Bread and Circus. I remember Bread and Circus. I've been there. Yeah, Bread and Circus sold no products with refined sugar, for example, and no meat. It was kind of spiffy and it had like carts you could push through the aisle like a normal supermarket, but you couldn't 
you could not put any refined sugar or red meat into your bin, you know, and the concept was we can change the world, you know, kind of one shopper at a time right. for the better. It's like classic kind of 70s idealistic business. That kind of business also depends on a local scale. So what happened to Bread and Circus? Well, it got purchased by Whole Foods, which was itself originally, as I understand, a local market very similar to Bread and Circus. It in started Austin. in Austin, Texas. That's right. Right, exactly. So it was Austin's version, and LA had Mrs. Gooch's. And I mean, and there was one in every single town. And when we used to go on tour like that, town to town to town, you'd, you know, we'd seek them out because it was like, where could you get yogurt in this town? That would be the place. So, you know, every town had that local thing. Whole Foods scaled up, bought out all the other local ones. And we kind of like got used to that as a concept. It's like, well, okay, economy of scale. There's some benefits to be had. Prices can go down theoretically. But what happens now? Amazon buys Whole Foods. Right. And Amazon is not a food company. It's not a grocer at all. This is the same thing as band camping bought by a gaming platform. What does Amazon know about fruits and vegetables? They don't know a damn thing. And our local Whole Foods, which had been a bread and circus, you know, I've lived here so long, I see the same, it's physically the same space, is now like an Amazon drop-off return center for non-food products and their stock habits have gone to hell. You walk in and there's like nothing of some staple. Oh, yogurt, for example, like they continually run out of yogurt. How can a grocery store run out of yogurt? You know, I mean, I sound like Andy Rooney now, but, right. but it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's so, it's like dairy, would you, you know, what is a grocery store except like where you go to get, you know, dairy? They're out of yogurt because they're practicing Amazon just-in-time inventory. So they'll let, they'll let it go down to zero. I don't know why. Some guy with a spreadsheet who's never worked in food, I'm sure, right. is dealing with that. We have a tofu factory in Cambridge. I mean, this Cambridge, right? We have a tofu <laughs> factory in Cambridge. Whole Foods, now that it's purchased by Amazon, stopped stocking the locally made tofu and only stocks domestic tofu made in California. Yeah. So they ship it from California instead of from down the street. Right. It's, it's decisions like that that we come to accept is like the cost of what? It's the cost of scaling up to the point where it makes zero sense. That's it right. just makes zero sense. I've covered Whole Foods recently on the show talking about their new foray into contactless checkout, I think they call it, mm, where basically mm -hmm. you, to enter the store, you scan your palm. Yuck. <laughs> oh my God. And then they yeah. have a grid. This is, yeah. I'm not exaggerating. There's a grid yeah. of surveillance cameras hanging oh, down on no. stalks. Oh no. Watching oh. everything you do. And so when you pick up the California-made right. tofu, then yeah. it registers centrally in some cloud database in Seattle. Oh my God. And oh then my when God. you walk out, it debits mm. your card. Uh, Purely for your convenience, Damon, you understand. It has yeah, nothing to yeah. do with their surveillance. Your right. No, your <laughs> convenience. Yeah. This is what we always get about convenience, that these innovations are always supposedly done for our benefit as consumers. And it is such a lie. And this is the lie we're living online in music, for example. It's so easy to see because, for example, on Spotify, Spotify tracking you is ostensibly to provide you with music you like based on your taste. Now, here's a simple way to see through that. Spotify has a program called Discovery Mode 
for labels to pay Spotify and have their tracks recommended algorithmically to more consumers. Now, if their tracking of you is for your benefit, how can it be that a label can purchase access to that stream? The label cannot purchase your taste, right? But Spotify can, because Spotify has figured out how to target market you by based on your habits through selling you this concept of convenience. And now they're selling it. They're selling that data. So what do you get in your stream? You get what Spotify has chosen to put in your stream right. that they earn more money from. And how is that different from payola? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. It is 100% payola. It is payola, plain and simple. Payola, for those who don't know, what is paid placement on the radio, which is illegal. It's illegal. Now, it became illegal after there was a big scandal in the, I think it was the late 50s, early 60s with the DJ Alan Freed, rock and roll DJ. And laws were passed to monitor this kind of thing for a public broadcast on the radio. And there's regulation. Now, why is Spotify unregulated? Because like all these digital online businesses, they stepped into a new technology that didn't apply to the old regulations. Right. But that's what they claim. That's so right. Spotify says, we're not broadcasting, we're not radio. Therefore, all your regulations that exist on the books for radio do not apply to us, including payola. That's, that's what you call regulatory arbitrage. When yes. you're able yes. to go into a field that is matured and has learned some very painful lessons and has passed mm -hmm. regulation to keep things in check. And then the new entrant comes in and says, well, none of that applies to me. And they destroy all of the companies in that space. Yeah, because the, the advantage is totally unfair, the competitive right. advantage. In the same way Facebook and Google have constantly claimed that they're not publishers, exactly. even though they are, in fact, the largest, most powerful publishers in the history of the world. Yes, yes. And then there they are putting journalists out of business. Right. But they are not subject to the rules that we have that in the legal system that built up over hundreds of years in, legal, right. in journalist's case, in music's case, it's built up over 100 years of recording. But it's the same concept. They've slipped through the cracks deliberately. That's how they've gotten so rich. They are the free, unregulated space in a world of regulated business. And they do it by claiming they're not the same type of business. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host and very happy to be here during the first show after our successful fundraising marathon. Thanks to everybody who pitched in. We're halfway through my interview with Damon Krakowski, who you might know from Damon and Naomi, or previous to that, Galaxy 500. We're talking about his recent writing on the purchase of Bandcamp and some of the activities of Spotify that stand in stark contrast to what Bandcamp used to be anyway. Uh, we're having a good conversation on the WFMU comments board. If you'd like to access that, go to WFMU.org and click playlist and comments. If you're listening in the future to an archive or a podcast version, you can find it in the archives at WFMU.org, or you can go to tectonic.fm, that's T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, 
find the March 21, 2022 show and click the playlist link and you can see what everyone said tonight. Let's return to my interview with Damon Krakowski here on Tectonic on WFMU. I want to return to music and Spotify. Mm -hmm. You talked about at the beginning of the interview, your disillusionment with the Bandcamp purchase because it was purchased by Epic Games. But for the moment, Bandcamp is still our our best option, right, Mm -hmm. for getting artists something approaching fair compensation. So continue to buy your music on Bandcamp if you can, because compared to Bandcamp, (laughs) Spotify is way, way, way more dangerous and harmful. Oh, oh, absolutely. And that's why Bandcamp is such a valuable business to the digital music community as it stands. And I really hope it doesn't change. I mean, of course, there's the outside chance that Epic Games will just be a benign uh, owner, give Bandcamp capital to use in their own for their own uses, and not create a data-driven, surveillance-driven internet business but they are a gaming company. And it's, it just seems very unlikely that they don't have an interest in this purchase, but who knows? But yes, I absolutely agree. Now, what has, what has made Bandcamp so special in the digital space is precisely this question of scale to me. The way Bandcamp works as opposed to streaming is listeners download a copy of whatever they want from Bandcamp, which serves as a rather transparent platform for the rights holders who upload to Bandcamp, either artists or labels. That is a small-scale purchase. That is the same one-by-one-by-one consumer exchange that every uh, one of those 16 bookstores and 14 record stores that I can remember in Harvard Square was based on. You physically had to make a purchase one at a time. It's laborious. I, I think I said in that piece, it was like, looking back, it was like we were building the pyramids out of paper and ink, like dragging one book at a time out of these stores and putting them you know, in different places. And it was just kind of like this very laborious collective activity that is very small scale, boils down to very small scale exchanges. That's not the case in streaming. Um, streaming is designed to eliminate that kind of scale and to scale up in that classic internet business way. How does music scale up? by not being downloaded, right? right? Downloading is too laborious. It's too small scale for the kind of scale that a company like Apple or Spotify or YouTube is looking for. They're looking for this contactless, you know, the way the Amazon right. dream of retail would be, contactless exchange that can be scaled endlessly. So one example I used was podcasting, which Spotify has taken such an extreme interest in recently, They paid Joe Rogan $200 million now, we know, according to the New York Times, for exclusive rights to his podcast. If you translate $200 million to music streaming on Spotify in royalty terms, it's 66 billion, 666 million, 666,667 streams. Now that is, if I had a hit song, that every person on the planet listened to over eight times, (laughs) I could earn back, I could break even on Joe Rogan's contract for Spotify, break even. That's not normal scale. That's not human scale. That's scale that doesn't really pertain to human activity. 66 billion. Yeah, you write in that piece, 
it's hard for the human mind to conceive of a number like that. 66 billion is just inconceivably high. And when I read that, it reminded me of a few people have written pieces online trying to help people conceive of the scale of wealth that some of these big tech founders have. Mm -hmm. One person put a site together about Jeff Bezos's wealth. I guess after his divorce, it is maybe not up to 100 billion, uh, but it's in the tens of billions of dollars. And to your point, Damon, it's not a number in human scale. Not at all. Not at all. It's a machine scale number. And Mm -hmm. what we're building is a machine scale economy with a machine scale reality. It's not Mm -hmm. meant for us people. No, exactly. I mean, it's it, the analogy to wealth is so perfect. That is a perfect way to to try and envision it, and also tell how not human that is. One human cannot make use of all that money that these oligarchs have. It's way beyond any kind of livable idea of what wealth could even enable you to do. What can you do? I mean, they're building rockets. They are literally building rockets because they've run out of things to throw their money at. Yeah. It's just, it's incredible. Now, as a footnote to that uh, 66 billion thing, I got a note from a Spotify employee who read my piece, who said, well, interesting, but 66 billion isn't a strange scale. That's just all our streams for one week globally. So you see someone inside that system can't even see yeah. the point that that's not a human level. Yeah, that's like someone saying... You know, Mark Zuckerberg being worth whatever it is, $100 billion, that's just the throughput of the NASDAQ exactly. on a normal day. Exactly. What, exactly. What, are you, what are you worried about? Well, what are you worried? Yeah, exactly. What's wrong with that? Well, if you, I mean, <laughs> if you get a good idea, you could have that too. You know, it's like, it's always that thing of like, just you know, be disruptive. Well, you just, right. You just wish you were Joe Rogan. Yeah. yeah it's just, you're just it's jealous. Just, yeah. 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 I get a lot of that from, you know, when I complain about streaming numbers. Well, you know, you just wish you were Pearl Jam or whatever. It's like, yeah, all right, all right. You know, it's not really my point. But yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, he could not even see the point that that scale doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, Because he has a job where he lives in those kinds of numbers every day because that's how they work. Now, it would be different if Spotify was somehow using this massive scale of wealth and power and Mm -hmm. influence to revolutionize the music industry, to bring it into the digital age that somehow supported working musicians like you, Damon. Mm -hmm. But that's not, in fact, what's happening. In fact, you wrote a piece just today Mm -hmm. that I read just before we got on, I really enjoyed, in which you're writing about the resurgence of popularity of one of your songs called Mm -hmm. Strange. Mm -hmm. It was determined by the Spotify algorithm that this one song of yours strange would become very, very popular to the exclusion of the rest of your catalog. Tell Mm -hmm. us what's happening there and why is that indicative (laughs) of where Spotify is taking us? Yeah, this is, again, this sort of inhuman choices, uh, inhuman scale, inhuman decisions. It's decisions made by an algorithm. In this case, the article was prompted by another 90s band, Pavement, I actually think of Galaxy 500 as an 80s band, but most people lump us in with the 90s, although we broke up in 91. But Pavement uh, hasn't made a record since 1999, okay? They have not recorded in this millennium. Uh, but 
Um, they just released a new video this week to a very old song, necessarily. They haven't recorded since 99, because that song has become hugely popular on Spotify. So it was due to this one song becoming popular on Spotify that prompted them to create a new music video for that song. Yes, yes. Now, that song never had a video because it was a B-side. It was an extra track. I see. It was an obscure track. So it was the algorithm basically knocking on the door saying, you might want to create a video for this one. Absolutely. And yeah, and so, you know, Pavement is capitalizing. This Galaxy 500 has not ever followed this route, this logical route of like, yo, what can we do now? Um, no, we did not make. So the same thing happened to their song that they just made the video for. It's called Harness Your Hopes. So, of course, yeah. online, it's just there in their catalog with everything else in Spotify. And the algorithm looks at everything and makes decisions of its own. This is not people making a decision to begin with, at least. Now, the way the reason I have an insight into this is that this happened to Galaxy 500, my old band, with this our song, Strange, that you mentioned. So Strange is now, if you look on Spotify, our most popular song. The band is becoming identified with this song. Now, here's the thing about it and why it called attention to itself for me as a member of the band. It wasn't our most popular song. It never was. It was, it's track four, okay, four on our second album, On Fire, from 1989. Now, why is track four significant? Well, pre-streaming in physical media days, where you place tracks on a record actually had a lot to signal to radio DJs, for example, um, and journalists and everyone else what your emphasis was, right? You didn't put track four as like a radio single, right? It's like in the middle of a side. You put the emphasis tracks are like track one, last track on side one, maybe, definitely first track on side two, last track on the record, you know, definitely. I mean, that's where you put singles, right? We didn't make a video for Strange, just like Pavement hadn't made a video until this week for Harness Your Horses, or Harness Your Hopes. I'm not saying it's a, it's like a bad song. It wasn't my personal favorite, but, you know, whatever. I was in the band. I have different feelings about it. But this is the weird thing. Suddenly, I noticed, this was back in 2018, that Strange, of all our songs, was being played twice as much as any of our other tracks in the whole catalog of Galaxy 100. And in fact, that was just of the next most popular song. Of most of our tracks, it was being played about 10 times more than any oh, of wow. than our, than our... And I looked at the album, I thought, what's going on? I looked at the tracks that surround Strange on On Fire, and they both had one-tenth the plays. So it wasn't people like listening through the album, obviously. People don't do that very much on Spotify. It was just this one track. This one track. track. So, you, you know, you think, oh, it must be on a playlist. So I search. It's not on any playlist on Spotify. In fact, Gosh Forever is not on any editorial playlist on Spotify. We could be blackballed from my big mouth. We don't know. Uh, but the fact is we're not on any editorial playlist. We get no editorial boost from Spotify, period. So I wrote about this on my blog at the time. And Spotify employee, in fact, the same one who just wrote me recently, he reads my stuff, wrote me and said, this is actually really interesting to me. I'm going to do some research. So he researched it and he openly shared with me, which was great of him. And this was in 2018. He contacted me. It's like, I actually found something really interesting. So he looked at, he had access, obviously, to figures that, that Spotify doesn't show us. He looked at precisely when the song Strange started to separate itself from our catalog as a whole and go up. And it had just gone like up on like a 45 degree angle ever since. It was in a given day in January, 2017. They had changed a preset in the app for everybody using Spotify. They changed the preset called Autoplay, I think it's called. It's the preset, you can go in and change it, turn it off now, 
But back then it would start it off and you had to turn it on. <clears throat> they flipped it to starting on. They changed the default setting. Yeah, thank you. Yes, they changed the default that day. What the default does, what it now does, say you go on and you do listen to Pavement or whatever. If you have the autoplay on, which is now the default, Spotify keeps playing. You now are not choosing what you're listening to. Spotify's algorithm is choosing what you hear. So that's what they changed that day. And this song, one song, Strange, started to rock it up. In other words, the algorithm was choosing that song to play out of our catalog. It was like when the algorithm reached for a Galaxy 500 song for autoplay on other people's feeds, that's what it chose. You know, and the conclusion seemed pretty obvious to me, which is like, what is the algorithm doing? And I checked with him. I was like, is the algorithm looking for something similar? To what was being listened to before. And he's like, yes, of course, that's what we're aiming for. I was like, well, how does it do it? He's like, oh, I can't tell you, you know, trade secret. But I was like, okay, but it is looking for similarity, right? He's like, yes, absolutely. That's what we're aiming for. So that you feel like, oh yeah, that's something else I want to hear. So you let it keep playing. That's the goal. Keep you on the platform. So you listen to Pavement from 1997. It stops. The algorithm's like, well, maybe we'll try a Galaxy 500 song. Which one? We're going to try this one strange. Why strange? Well, it seems to me it's because it sounds more like other bands than our other music. In other words, it's the least characteristic song in our catalog. That's the only conclusion I can come to because the why it's being picked out is the, not that it expresses our uniqueness. Well, just the opposite. It's just the opposite. It's where we crossed most closely with the most other types of music that are out there. You listen to REM, you might like Strange. So what the Spotify algorithm seems to be doing is rewarding music that sounds like existing music that's already popular. Exactly. Exactly. And so if an artist then uploads music to Spotify that's genuinely new or distinctive or innovative or different in some way, they're punished by the algorithm. Yeah. I mean, you can also, of course, have a huge hit by being innovative. I mean, hits, new hits usually are to some degree. But here's an interesting statistical fact about streaming that came out in January. Looking at last year's annual totals, 70% of streamed music is catalog releases. It's old releases. 70, 70. You're talking about the medium for pop music at this moment in our world. Only 30% of what is streamed has been released within the last two years, or year and a half, I think is their cutoff, year and a half. Streaming is falling out as slanted toward formerly released tracks, which leads to all kinds of changes in the industry. You've probably read about all these enormous publishing deals that are being done for the kind of the stars of the baby boomers at the ends of their careers. But on streaming, if 70% is catalog, well, you'd be smarter to put your money in catalog than in the 30% of new music. And so if we bring this full circle back to your walk around Harvard Square, mm -hmm. whether we're looking online at music online, which is dominated by the likes of Spotify and YouTube, other algorithmic surveillance companies, <laughs> or we look in our built environment, our urban environment in Cambridge or here in New York, and we see the landscape dominated by real estate offices and banks and just financialized entities free of any kind of creativity. These both give us a vision of the future 
that tech and finance want to build for us, mm -hmm. algorithmically determined to consolidate markets and generate immense inhuman amounts of wealth for a very, very small number of people, leaving the actual creative citizens and artists out in the cold. Yeah, that is the grim, that is the grim reality. I think that is what we're facing. I mean, it's what we're living. It's not like a future we're describing. You're describing what we're in the middle of. I mean, it is really, we're drowning in that attitude. We're drowning in finance capital, in venture capital, and in a life as consumers as well as creators that is dominated by these massive businesses. I mean, you cannot avoid Amazon, Apple, Google, you can't Facebook, you can't avoid them. And that's that's what's so scary to me at the, about this moment is how hard it is to get around them. Bandcamp, to take this example that we started with, is a way around Spotify and Apple Music and, and YouTube for musicians. Well, it has been. It has been. And it just got bought by Epic Games, which is capitalized about to the level of Spotify. So we're talking about the same level of business now. And that's the problem. And once you scale it up in that way, well, now we're just back to the same problem. I mean, not yet in Bandcamp's case, daily life, but financially, they're already there. But where I know we're going is to that question of scaling. It's like, how is it going to scale? And I don't think you can scale downloads. I mean, I, th I think I, that may actually be what Epic Games is interested in because gaming does depend on downloads too. It's like, can you scale downloads? You know, it might just be a big experiment. And if it fails, we'll lose the platform. I mean, that's the other thing that happens. It hence all the closed stores in Harvard Square, you know, vacancies. Right. You know, I'm never, you know, I mean, it's like, why is the most valuable real estate also have the highest vacancy rate? That's such a, a, a paradox. Yeah. But that is, that is another fact of massive capitalization where it's better to leave it vacant than to allow it to have a, a, a small time store in it. I just can't stop thinking about Andy Rooney and what he would say about this. <laughs> Do you yeah. ever notice how you're living in a surveillance dystopian hellscape? What if my palm gets hacked? You ever think about that? Exactly. Yeah. And not only that, but they're out of tofu. I'm Andy Rooney. That's the danger. We have to guard against that. I know. And we have to guard against large capital, but even more, we have to guard against becoming Andy Rooney, you and me. <laughs> it's, that's going to be one of the more difficult struggles, I'm afraid. Yes, yes there, there are big struggles, and then there are really big struggles. Right. Well, Damon Krakowski, this has been refreshing and informative as always. Well, thanks so much for having me on, and God love WFMU. FMU is, again, the kind of scale we have to hold on to. So support FMU out there, please. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 11 or so minutes of the show. And I will be followed by DJ Arb with a special Arbitrarium that's going to go for two hours this evening. She's uh, doing her regular hour following Tectonic and then the hour that usually goes to Vocal Fry with Dan Boda. So two-hour arbitrarium coming up after this. 
Thanks to Damon Krukowski for his time speaking with me about the Bandcamp purchase and Spotify and the issue of Scale, which we just heard. If you'd like to read those columns by Damon Krukowski, go to the playlist. I've put the links up. As I said at the top of the interview, uh, Damon's blog is called Data Drummer Almanac. It's on Substack, which I am not a fan of the Substack platform. Someone asked uh, what Substack is, and maybe I'll get to that in a in a subsequent episode. But suffice to say, it's a it's a collection of web blogs, and uh, Substack itself is heavily capitalized by Silicon Valley money. So I am not a supporter. But I do read a number of them because I like the writers, and Damon is one of the best. Uh, So I would recommend, uh, nevertheless, even though it's on Substack, I would still recommend taking a look at Dada Drummer Almanac. And you can find that uh, at the playlist, wfmu.org, click playlist and comments, or you can find it, uh, if you're listening in the future, at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm. I've also put links to the two... Uh, blog posts, the articles or columns that we we reference, the the piece on scale, Damon's walk around Harvard Square, looking at the what the, the locations that used to be bookstores and record stores. It's called Scaling Up, from March eight, and then the piece about uh, the Galaxy five hundred song called Strange, is a p is a March fifteen column, that he calls and the band played on the algorithmic push toward the past, which is well-named because, as, as Damon pointed out, uh, the Spotify algorithm tends to be pushing everyone to listen to what was popular in the past. Um, on the comment board, we, we had a great, we are still having a great conversation on the comment board, but I really liked Web Hamster Henry's comment, a, a, a two-word summary of the whole interview which is mediocrity scales. And isn't that the truth, friends, that what is the real problem, the real culprit behind all of this, as I think Damon did a great job of pointing out, is the inhuman scale behind the algorithm, behind the capitalization, behind the business models, uh, behind how these platforms work in, in the Silicon Valley phrase at scale is a way that benefits the computers, it benefits the oligarchs, <laughs> the tiny group of people who own the companies, and not a whole lot else. We, we as, as lovers of music, we are not being, uh, being served by an algorithm that points everybody to a mediocre uh, conception of music, pointing people to the past. And to the, the converse to that idea is, as Damon said, the we have to support the institutions, the organizations, the radio stations that don't engage in that, that are not beholden to a scaled Silicon Valley capitalization. And that's one one of the many reasons why I feel so privileged to be a part of WFMU, because this radio station does not engage in any of that nonsense. And... This is, I mean, it's, it's practically the definition of what you get when you are not chasing scaled dollars. We, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want this to sound like a, the fundraising pitch because we, we finished all of those on the marathon. But I'll just say that the, um, the radio station, this radio station lives not 
by scale, but by the individual donations of listeners, much like the record stores and bookstores Damon was pointing out, they lived by individual people coming in and buying a book or buying a record. And the, the, the um, I won't call it a downside, but what the, uh, I suppose the price you have to pay as an organization is that you can't become a billionaire. Oh, no. <laughs> Running something that's not at scale, you can't become a billionaire. You'll never be able to buy a yacht so big that they have to deconstruct a, a, a Dutch bridge and have people threaten to throw eggs at it. You cannot get to that level of inhuman wealth by person-by-person uh, -person sales of books and music. But if you are willing to give up the dream of becoming an inhuman billionaire, what you get in exchange is the ability to create something that is so great. It's so great. And, uh, and I, WFMU is, is doing that and working musicians like Damon Krakowski and, and Damon and Naomi, they're doing it. And there are, how, there are countless musicians, bands out there who are trying to create something with integrity and they're having a difficult time because of this economy that has been handed over to scalable, financializable capital from Silicon Valley and Wall Street. And, and it's wrong and we are suffering. Anyone who loves music, as I do, we are suffering because of that. And so uh, all I can do is just encourage people to read what Damon Krakowski writes and keep in touch with his continued thinking and his continued um, music making. And as he says, for the moment anyway, Bandcamp is our least bad option. Um, I don't have a lot of time to go into Epic Games. Uh, as I said, if I have time, I'll get into it. Um, but uh, maybe on a subsequent show, we can talk more about Fortnite. I appreciated the comment from BRM who gave his observations, his or her, uh, their observations as a dad. Oh, his, <laughs> sorry, his observations as a dad. Uh, he has kids who play Fortnite. And you can read the, those observations on the comment board if you're interested to know uh, what it is from a parent's perspective. And I, and I can vouch for these because uh, my own son, DJ Paradox, was into Fortnite a while ago. And um, what BRM is writing is is true. The, the last thing I'll point out is that we had some fun with uh, this, this um, story from Question Mark, uh, the, the commenter whose, whose screen name is Question Mark, who writes, I wore a WFMU t-shirt into a Whole Foods. Speaking of Whole Foods, as, as Damon was. Question Mark continues, the person checking me out asked if WFMU stood for Whole Foods Marketing University. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, no, no, WFMU does not stand for Whole Foods Marketing University. And then we had some fun, different listeners are, are pitching in ideas for uh, what WFMU could stand for. And I really liked what Dan F.A. wrote. WFMU, werewolf freaks meet underground. <laughs> There's more. I don't have time to read through them all, but it, thanks to everyone who participated. And I keep forgetting, I keep, this is my third week. I almost forget to, forgot to say this. If you look at the comment board and you see someone has a little robot head emoji by their uh, screen name, 
That means they donated to Tectonic in the recent fundraising marathon. So thanks to everyone who has a robot head emoji. And if you missed your chance, it's, it's still up there if you look in the top of the playlist. The, uh, the pledge widget is still there if you feel so moved. But um, I appreciate everyone for showing up this evening. And thanks again for all your support over the, over the last two weeks. Next week, I am planning on running an interview that um, has little to no laughter and lightness. I'm just preparing you. It's dark and it is set in China. And uh, I hope you will join me for that interview in, in, in one week. And I'll, I'll tell you more as we get closer. Um, in the meantime, I want you to stay tuned for DJ Arb with a special two-hour version of The Arbitrarium. And I want to remind you that you have been listening to the greatest radio station of the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. And until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. And you know there was only one song that we could possibly end this show with. <laughs> Spotify's favorite. And uh, in honor of Damon Krakowski, thanks again for being on the show. Here is, by Galaxy 500, Strange. Have a great week, everybody. Welcome to the Arbitrarium, capital of the country of Arbsurdistan. I am your president, Arb. <laughs> yes. I'm laughing. Because I'm nervous. And you are listening right now.
I am telling this story a long, long time ago, but right now you are listening. Time and space don't exist. Perhaps you think it's silly. But there's a very good reason why I tell you. I have to tell you this. And you are listening right now. Your ears wide open. And my voice will enter deeply into your brain. Just when we traveled all the way to the south, a country I hadn't been before, everything completely different, completely disorganized in my vision. And she had been sitting in the back of the car. I was sitting close to her. And my brother and my sister too, all in the back seat, my parents in front, all the way to the south. She was very old and very quiet and she watched the landscape and she looked out of the window and then we stopped in this wonderful field and I helped her out of the car and we walked into the grass and she stood up erect and then she she had this wonderful wonderful look she looked me into the eyes and she gave me this little little plant that she picked she didn't even look but it was a four leaf clover I was baffled I took it like it was gold and I looked at her eyes and she looked back and eyes were very much alive and then something broke very slowly she fell into the soft grass and there was something very beautiful in my body I stood there for a long time watching her laying down so slowly and then I called my parents and they were in panic, she was dead, she had died in front of my eyes and I didn't even feel any grief, just this little four-leaf clover that she gave me and of course we could not bury her here, we could not leave her here, we didn't know anything here, we didn't speak the language so we put her in the back of the car, I was sitting next to her And my father drove like a maniac and I very slowly felt her body cool off, getting colder and colder. It was late in the evening, we drove the entire night and early in the morning, everybody was totally tired. And we needed some coffee and we got out and we walked in this place, we did not have much time, we had our coffee very quickly, we came back and... The car was gone, stolen, and we never found her back. And it was only, only last week when I got my little cassette recorder and this little microphone that I got a message that we discovered the cemetery where she had been buried was in the south. It was a place where there were a lot of of violence and murders it was very difficult to 
tell you this, but anyway, I went to the cemetery and I didn't even bother if it was the real grave, but I felt this must be it, and I had my little dried four-leaf clover in my hands. It was getting late in the evening, and I, I saw how 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 there was somebody buried there. It was a woman. She was pregnant, and she died just before she got her kid, and everybody was crying, and everybody left, and I was all alone, and I was talking to her, and it was getting dark, and then those four people came as shadows, as black shadows, they had lights, and they went to that fresh grave, and they dug it up, and they opened the coffin, and one said, give me the knife, and I saw it in front of my eyes, it was behind the grave, I could see everything, and they cut her open, and the kids came out, and they cut off the little arm, and the arms they hold into their hands, and it, it, it was shining, it, it, it gave light, and, 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 and then they saw me, and, and I, I ran away, I, I have never in my life run so fast, I, I heard, I heard them in the back, and they had, they were not shooting or so, and they came closer and closer, and then, he was standing over me with his very short baby arm. I was vomiting and he was saying something and I fell asleep. Mm-hmm.